mentioned to you last week that I have a, a book in my library called Eyewitness to America. And it, it is a, it's a book that uh, has well over 500 pages, uh, upwards of six or 700 pages, just about different eyewitness stories and accounts of things that happened in our history. I, I thought it was appropriate to, to read one of these this morning as I begin the sermon because I think it leads right into what we'll talk about. Uh, this one is an account of uh, the, the identification uh, of the body of Jesse James. Now, I know none of you are old enough to remember Jesse, um, face to face anyway, all right? So we'll all hearken back uh, to, uh, to stories and legends that we've heard. In fact, this story was written on April 3rd, 1882, so the anniversary of his death is rolling around here pretty soon. This is from an anonymous Western Associated Press reporter. Uh, here's the little synopsis that sort of sets the stage for what this reporter wrote. After the Civil War, former rebel guerrilla fighter Jesse James formed a gang with his brother Frank and some other outlaws. For 15 years, they robbed banks and trains in the Midwest, becoming folk heroes. Because of the many reported sightings of James after his death, a body was exhumed from his grave in 1995 for DNA testing. It was James's. So here is the report from, uh, from 1882. A great sensation was created in this city this morning by the announcement that Jesse James, the notorious bandit and train robber, had been shot and killed here in St. Joseph, Missouri. The news spread with great rapidity, but most people received it with doubts until investigation established the fact beyond question. Then the excitement became more and more intense. And crowds of people rushed to that quarter of the city where the shooting took place, anxious to view the body of the dead outlaw and to learn the particulars. The body is that of a man of magnificent physique, who in the pride of health and strength must have been a commanding figure, six feet tall and weighing 175 pounds, with every muscle developed and hardened by active life. It is a body that would fill with delight the surgeon seeking material for demonstrating anatomy, the features, but little disturbed in death, are not unpleasing and bear the imprint of self-reliance, firmness, and dauntless courage. To look upon that face is to believe that the wonderful deeds of daring ascribed to Jesse James have not been exaggerated. The hair is dark brown, the eyes half open, glazed a cold steel gray. Upon the upper lip, a close-cropped mustache stained by nasal hemorrhage, and the lower part of the face covered by a close brown beard about four inches long. Over the left eye is the blackened wound caused by the bullet of Robert Ford, the beardless boy whose cunning and treachery, uh, animated by greed of gold, brought to an ignoble end the desperado who had so long snapped his fingers contemptuously at the law and its myriad of agents. A superficial examination of the body would alone afford strong proof that the dead body is that of Jesse James. He has literally been shot to pieces in his daring exploits, and his old, wo his old wounds would have killed anyone cast in a less rugged mold. Two bullets have pierced his abdomen and are still in the body. There's a bullet hole in the right wrist, another in the right ankle. Two more disfigure the left thigh and knee. The hands are soft and white and unstained by manual labor. And the middle finger of the left hand has been shot away at the first joint. Hundreds of people have passed before the body. And while there was a unanimous expression of relief that the country was, so, was rid of so formidable a desperado, there were not a few who did not hesitate the manner of, to condemn the manner of his taking off. Nevertheless, the young Ford brothers are undeniably the heroes of the hour. As they sit in the county clerk's office this afternoon, awaiting their call before the coroner's inquest, then progressing in an adjoining room, they were the coolest and most unconcerned persons present. 
and the very last that a stranger would pick out as the slayers of Jesse James. Isn't it interesting that they had to confirm that he actually died? There was a lot of fear surrounding Jesse James, a lot of legend surrounding Jesse James, and only upon the confirmation, eyewitness account of his actual body being dead, could those fears be alleviated and the reward for his killing be collected. I really believe that, um, that Scripture today will show us a similar story. Not of an outlaw that we would want dead, but of our Savior whose death was proven so that fears could be alleviated and we could share in his eternal rewards. It's interesting to me that not everything about Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. Each of the gospel writers, of course, has a different point they are trying to make, all geared toward identifying Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, but they come at it from different angles. So we don't have the same thing in every single gospel account. Obviously, the crucifixion, the resurrection are there in all four accounts and so on. Uh, but there's something else that's in common in these passages that I want to look at this morning. So. Uh, unfortunately, we're having some technical issues, and uh, the, the words to the Scripture won't be on the screen this morning. So I'd like for you to turn in your Bible, uh, even if your version is a little different, and flip with me to a couple of different passages. First, look at Matthew chapter 27. What I want to show you this morning is something that maybe you've never thought of about being of great importance uh, that is actually in all four gospel accounts. And you certainly know that if something is in all four gospel accounts, if all four writers deem it important enough to write the, the, the specific details of that event, then there must be something to it um, that, that we need to look at. Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 57. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Of course, this is after the crucifixion. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left, he left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. Verse 62. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we must remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now look at Mark. Flip over to the right just a little bit. Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, verse 42. This will sound very familiar. When it was already evening, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who himself was looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he had already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. And when he, came, when he, when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some fine linen, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. 
Then he placed him in a tomb cut, out, tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were also watching where he was placed. Now look over in Luke. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. And finally, look in the book of John. One more book over to the right. John chapter 19. John 19, verse 38. After this, of course, talking about the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 70 pounds of myrrh and aloes. When they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with aromatic spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews, there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus' body there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. You sort of pick up on a pattern here that all the gospel writers believe that the details of the burial of Jesus were important. Now around Easter, we talk about the death of Christ. We just sang about the death of Christ that pays the debt that we could never pay. Next Sunday morning, we'll proclaim the resurrection of Christ, which of course provides the opportunity for us to have new life in him. But something usually gets left out, and that is the burial of Christ. You think, well, it's not a real exciting thing to talk about. Many of us have, uh, have endured over the last several years burying many family members. You go to that graveside service, and the finality of it is most pressing. I always know that, that uh, the funeral itself, the, the service, maybe in the funeral home, will be difficult, certainly. But there's always that one last opportunity to be with that person, at least physically, and then it's over. It's a tough, tough moment. The burial is not something we particularly like to think about much, but the gospel writers thought it was that important to include it in each of their accounts. Why would the details... Why would the details of the burial of Jesus be so important that they would be included in all four gospel accounts? I think Paul gives us a little hint toward that. Let me read you a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing here and he sort of gives his, his creed, his faith creed. He said, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul believes it's important enough to talk about the burial of Christ, that he would include it, and here's what's most important. 
You've got to understand this. Here's the crux, he says, of our faith. That Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised again. This morning, I, I want to talk to you about the, the importance of the burial of Jesus Christ. Just as these people in this eyewitness account had to be sure that Jesse James was dead, so their fears could be alleviated, so the reward could be collected, it is important for us to know, even though you may already believe it, to be reinforced this morning that Jesus did in fact die. And that he really died and was really buried. And that makes a tremendous difference in our faith, and I hope to show you why. The soldiers at the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, the women who attended to Jesus, they all witnessed something that is monumental in my opinion, and that is Jesus really died, and he was really buried. My goal is to prove to you why that's true and hopefully give you some information on why that matters for you today. If you say, well, you know what? <laughs> I already believe that. That's wonderful. I'm glad that you do. I'm not convinced that everyone does, but I'm glad that you do. And I hope to show you why that should matter in your life, why it should not be, well, yeah, Jesus died, he was buried, and he raised again. So often we say it so fast, it seems to lose its punch. How do we know that it's true? Well, there's significant evidence about the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, certainly, we know that even before his crucifixion, he endured tremendous torture. If you read the gospel accounts, particularly last week, we looked at uh, the gospel account in Mark, where he, he, he talks to us about the, the torture that Jesus endured on his way to the cross. So Jesus is, is whipped with what's called a cat of nine tails. Maybe you've, you've seen some picture of that. It's a whip that has several different whips attached to it and rock and glass and so on, whatever they can get to embed in those, in those tines to, to hit against someone's back and not just to beat them, but to rip their skin from their body. Now, we, we have trouble understanding that here in America. We have a law against cruel and unusual punishment. Jesus did not benefit from such a law. It's hard for us to understand the torture that he went through. The fact that all, during this whole ordeal, he's given no food. He was up all night adding to his demise. The death by crucifixion really is hard for us to even imagine. Uh, some of us this morning maybe even have a cross placed somewhere. We've of course, got a cross up on the, the, the steeple of the church. Maybe you wear one around your neck and so on. But if we truly understood what Jesus endured on the cross, I, 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 we may be more hesitant to identify with that cross. Death uh, by crucifixion includes everything that torture and death can offer, pain can have. I, I came across this, this account and description. I think it's interesting. Dizziness, cramping, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, the publicity of one's shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds. All of these to the point where the the person can, can barely endure all of those, but not to the point where they gain relief by becoming unconscious. Imagine that for just a second. The worst torment that your body physically and mentally and psychologically can endure all at once to the point of, of absolute horrific mindset, physical nature, and so on, but not to the point where you pass out 
and you don't experience it anymore. The unnatural position of being on the cross made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang and burning of raging thirst. One of those would be enough, wouldn't it? All of these physical complications cause internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect, listen to this description, the prospect of death itself, at whose approach man usually shudders most, long for it as a delicious and exquisite release. People who were hung on a cross didn't want to just fake as if they had died. They wanted to die. There are some who, looking for a way around the resurrection of Christ to disprove Christianity altogether, will contend that Jesus didn't really die, that all of that didn't really kill him, that yes, he was tortured and beaten, and, and yes, he was starved and dehydrated, and yes, he was crucified, but he didn't really die. They figure if they can, can disprove the resurrection, they can disprove Christianity, which of course is true. If they can, that is what happens. So they've come up with alternate theories. One is known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory states that Jesus did not really die, but the soldiers who took him down, the people who attended to him, thought that he had died. It appeared as if he died. He sort of fell out and appeared so lifeless, though not being dead, that they, they presumed him dead. Now what this ignores is the gruesome facts surrounding the crucifixion that I just mentioned. It's not as if Jesus was given a couple of swats and sent on his way. He was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. Having nails driven through his hands and feet, a crown of thorn on, thorns on his head. He's later wrapped from head to toe, placed in a dark, damp tomb. And all of this after a night of psychological torment, sweating drops of blood. And they assume that somehow he's just faking it. This also assumes that there are monumental blunders on the part of those who crucified him. You realize that the Roman soldiers who crucified him were professionals. They did this on a regular basis. And they were bound by the law to make sure that a person who they crucified was indeed crucified and later died. That was their job. So this swoon theory, this idea that Jesus really didn't die, that maybe he just faked it, doesn't hold much water. It also requires a sort of a mission impossible escape from the tomb. Maybe you can hear the music begin to start. And, and, and Jesus there is laying in the tomb and, and he's, he's lifeless to some degree, they think, and and, and they presume him dead, and here he is wrapped and beaten and weak and so on, and he just musters up the courage to make one last stand. And through the darkness, he finds his way to the edge of the tomb where the rock is, and summoning superhuman strength, he pushes that rock out of the way, fights all the guards off, and escapes. That would be what would have to happen. Now, I don't mean to make completely light of these different theories, but... In essence, they hold very little water. There's also the conspiracy theory uh, that the crucifixion happened, just as the Bible says, uh, sort of. That after the burial, the disciples decided to, to tell a lie that they would all be in on, and they would remove the body and claim that Jesus had been resurrected. 
Now, if they were to make up this story, they would have to steal the body from the guards who were guarding it, move the stone, get Jesus out of there, with, and leave the, the grave clothes exactly the way they were, and somehow convince each other to die for that lie, because they all did. There's also the hallucination theory, which is equally interesting. That they merely thought, the disciples merely thought that they saw the resurrected Christ. That he still was, was in the tomb or somewhere else. Jesus never really rose from the dead, they just imagined it. But in order to disprove that theory, all you have to do is go to the tomb and point to the body. But the empty tomb is a proven fact. All of that is just an attempt to explain Christianity in non-spiritual terms. We have great evidence that Jesus actually died. So when Paul says, let me tell you what's most important. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. We have great evidence that those first two made the third one possible. There's other evidence as well. The stone was rolled in front of that. Large, heavy disc. You kind of picture this. It would roll. I wonder what that stone would have to say about the death of Jesus Christ. The stone simply proves that they believed it was final. It was over. The tomb seal, it says here in the Gospels, it was sealed most likely with a cord so that anyone who disturbed it would be found out. There are also witnesses to the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Pilate asked for certification of his death. He asked, is he dead? And the soldiers had to report to him and say, yes, he is dead. He was surprised that he had died so quickly, but took it as fact. The guarding of the tomb is clear evidence that the Jews believed Jesus was dead. They didn't want the body stolen. They didn't want Jesus, they didn't try to prevent Jesus from from pushing the rock himself. They, They assumed that he was dead and that the disciples would try to prove his resurrection by stealing the body. These Roman soldiers knew that Jesus was dead. They pierced his side and said, yes, he, he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea, who loaned the tomb to Jesus, knew that he was dead as he tended to the body. The disciples believed that Jesus was dead and did not expect him to return. They seemed hopeless, applying spices for longevity, preservation in the long term of the body. We also have knowledge from these burial procedures that they believed that Jesus really was dead. And so they really did bury him. You may say, well, that's sort of a nice compilation of facts. Thank you for that. I'll be able to speak somewhat more intelligently now with some friends when we talk about the details of the burial of Jesus Christ. But if that's all you get left with this morning, you've missed the entire point. So don't miss the next part. Jesus was really dead, and he really was buried, and that really matters for several, several reasons, the first of which is that sin has real consequences. Sin has real consequences. From Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, God promised that because of sin, what? You will surely die. God told the Israelites all along, I am providing a Savior for you, the Messiah who is to come, who will bear the sins of mankind upon himself and die in your place. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the payment for sin is what? You might know it. Death. Sin has real consequences. Last weekend, I had the privilege of doing a wedding in Louisville. And I was there Friday and Saturday. 
course, Louisville is my hometown. I was able to be around some friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And I went over to my alma mater, to Pledge Ridge Park High School. And they were playing baseball that weekend. And I, I got to witness something very interesting. I got there on a Saturday morning and was talking with the coaches, guys that I used to play for and, and, I, and guys that I coached with. And so I, we just striking up old conversations, and maybe you've had opportunities like that before. And they told me of two players that morning who had broken some team rules. Now, the team rule was this. You have to turn in your cell phone when you get to the park. Apparently, they'd had problems with text messaging and tweeting and being on Facebook during games. I, I, whatever. But that's, that was the problem. And so they told these players, you have to turn in your phone. All the players knew the rule. Every one of them. There were two young men that day who, instead of turning in their phones, turned in the cases for their phones in an attempt to deceive and get around the rule. Now, that's pretty slick. You know, you've got to give them a little credit for creativity, all right? But it didn't work. That's the problem. What happened was the coaches found out very quickly. There were two games scheduled that day, and both players were suspended for both of those games. Both were starters, and both expected to play. Their parents showed up, friends, family, all that stuff showed up that day. So here they are, and I had, I was, I, the Lord put me in the right spot at the right time. I was standing at the concession stand when both players in succession come up, one, and then a few minutes later, the other. The lady at the concession stand, who knows them both, looks at the first and says, what did you do? Why aren't you playing? And he says, I did something stupid. And he went on to explain that instead of turning in my phone, um, I'm an idiot. And I turned in my case. And so now I get what I deserve because I broke the rules. I was really impressed with that young man. Yeah, he did what was wrong, but he admitted that he owned up to it and he accepted his punishment. Then the next young man comes up. But he asked him the same question. What would you do? Why aren't you playing? Well, I broke a team rule. Turned in my case instead of my phone. But, you know, last year they suspended the guy for two years for, something, for two games, a whole, whole lot worse than what I did. The look on his face, he was angry. He wasn't angry because, because he, he knew he messed up. He was angry at the coaches because he thought the rule was stupid and they shouldn't have punished him because they gave the same punishment to another kid for something a whole lot worse the year before. Somewhere along the line, somebody dropped the ball in explaining to this young man that sin has consequences. I wanted to stop him right there. I didn't know him, all right, so it wouldn't have necessarily been appropriate or, or helpful at that moment. He probably would have punched me in the mouth. But, but I wanted to stop him and say, you know what? You know what the rest of your life is going to look like unless you figure this out? Unless you come to grips with the fact that when you make a rotten, stupid, ignorant, idiotic choice, you're going to pay for it. You know what the rest of your life is going to look like? I was so challenged and humbled in that moment to say, you know what, I've got to recognize in my own life that sin has consequences. Some of us here today, though we would not want to admit it, are currently in a time where we are operating as if sin has no bearing on our life whatsoever. That it does not matter what we do, that it will not, it will not have to be paid for, that it will not come back to haunt us, so to speak, that we will never experience negative consequences for our sinful choices. Some of us here this morning are caught in that cycle. So we need to observe from the death and burial of Jesus Christ that sin has consequences. Someone had to die for it. And it was Jesus. We need to remember that as we move forward. 
And if you have influence on young people, teach it to them. I don't mean beat them over the head with it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about figure out some way to reinforce the fact in appropriate measures specific to that child that you know them and with godly wisdom you help them understand that not only from God's word but just in life in general we experience and we learn that sin has consequences. We do not need to raise a generation of children who believe that sin has no consequence whatsoever. Secondly, we learn from the death and burial of Jesus Christ that payment for sin was made in full. Payment for sin was made in full. He was dead and he was buried. It is finished, he said. There's nothing left to do. Sometimes we try to do more than what the death of Jesus Christ could do in our lives. We say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior for my sins. Yes, I believe He's the Son of God. Yes, I believe He died for my sins. And yes, I believe that's how I receive salvation through faith. But I really should do this too. I really ought to and I really need to. And boy, if I don't do this, then I... You ever played that game? You ever missed a Sunday at church? And felt like, well, I've done it now. Missed two Sundays in a row. Watch out. Or you said, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year. And you get to Leviticus. Man, Leviticus is hard. And you stop in Leviticus. And you you just think, well, you know what? Yeah, I know. I count on Jesus for salvation. But I need to do these other things as well. Do you realize that what you're doing is saying Jesus plus this equals my salvation instead of Jesus plus nothing equals my salvation? Jesus plus nothing equals everything? And anything that I do as a result of my salvation is simply obedience to Christ after the fact, not trying to earn or win my salvation before the fact. We sometimes live so legalistically, and Jesus just says, look, I paid for it all. There's nothing left to do. Nothing left to add to this. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. Nothing can can replace it either. Many people in our world, even maybe some here, are convinced that you can detour around Jesus and still somehow get to God. You can still somehow wind up in heaven one day because, well, if anybody deserved a place in heaven, it's that person. You ever heard that? None of us deserve a place in heaven. We've all sinned. Bible says, and we all fall short of God's standard. Every one of us. Nothing can replace the death and the burial of Jesus as necessity for our salvation. Only through Him do we have the doorway to God and eternal life. That's it. Payment for sin was made in full. Thirdly, our sin is buried with Christ. Our sin is buried with Christ. I love Galatians chapter 2. The end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Think of the imagery. There I am hanging on the cross with him, and I no longer live. Why? Because I have died. And I've been buried with him, Paul would say. But Christ lives in me. And he says, yes, I keep on living. The life I now live, he says, in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. I've been crucified with Christ, he says. I no longer live. In coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I share in his death and in his burial. And because of his burial, the symbolic nature of taking my sin to the grave and leaving it there upon the resurrection, my sin has been buried with Christ. So Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 can be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's been buried and it's gone. My sin is buried with Christ. Yes, in a biological sense, I will still die. But spiritually, because of the death and burial of Jesus Christ, don't have to die spiritually. Separation from God because of my sin is no longer a necessity because of the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus proved that death, even though it's our primary enemy physically, is only the doorway, the pathway to true and eternal life. What's happened is through the death and burial of Jesus Christ, I've been crucified and buried as well. The judgment of Christ did not fall on, or the judgment of God rather did not fall on me, but fell on Christ. And because I've received His grace by faith, and because I'm in Him, the Bible says, I experience the same thing. The old sinful person, the old sinful nature has been judged, it's been condemned, it's been sentenced, and it's been left in the grave because Jesus rose again to bring me new life. Sin has real consequences. Payment for sin was made in full. My sin is buried with Christ. And fourthly, the resurrection became possible. The resurrection is the, the crux of Christianity. Let me read it to you this way. Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we place our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You ever heard someone say, well, if, you, if you're an atheist and I'm a Christian and, um, and, and if, you know, if you're right and I'm wrong, then you know, really I, I've, I've lost nothing. Or, you know, but it, but if, you, if, if I'm right and you're wrong, well, then you lost everything. Well, that, that's goofy. It may sound good, it may preach well, but it's goofy. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't take place, why in the world would you live for Jesus Christ? He's dead. If the resurrection didn't happen, what's the point in being here this morning? <laughs> Think about it. No sense in being a good person. If Jesus isn't alive, who cares? And I mean that. <laughs> live it up. But if he really did rise from the dead, if he was dead so that he could rise, then it all matters and it's all true. That's why we do what we do. That's why we live the way we live. If he did not die, he could not be raised. 
And if he could not be raised, then what we believe is a cruel, cruel lie. But because he did die, because he was buried, it became possible for him to be resurrected and glorified by God. And, and as a result, it became possible for us to share in that new life with him. The grave is a necessity. Jesus had to be buried, but it's only a doorway to true and eternal life. So this week, when Satan comes knocking to accuse you, you sinner, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say what you just said. You would not think those thoughts. If those people at church knew the way you acted Monday through Friday, they'd never let you come in the door. In fact, when they see you come in, they'd lock the doors, turn off the lights, and pretend that they're not there. It may seem a little bit exaggerated, but isn't that the way it works? He'll accuse you this week. <clears throat> so remind yourself and him of the truth. Jesus died for my sin. My debt is gone. It is buried with Jesus Christ. My chains are gone. There is no more condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus. Remind Satan of the truth. He can't handle the truth. All he has is lies. When temptation attacks you this week, and it surely will, in a variety of forms, ask the Lord for the strength that Jesus had to endure what he went through. When doubt arises, go back to the basics of Scripture. That Jesus lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised. The evidence is overwhelming. When sin abounds in your life, run to the one who died to save you from it. Remember that it's been paid in full, and it's buried with Christ. So remember the truth. Jesus really died. He was really buried. So payment for sin was made in full. But your sin is buried with Christ. Because he died, Jesus could be raised, and you, by your faith in him, have been crucified, buried, and raised with him into new life. I tell you, though, it's not automatic. Coming here and getting a little sprinkling of Scripture this morning is not what will save you. It's only received by faith in Jesus. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Understand the implications of that particular statement, by the way. Many will say to me, he says, Lord, Lord, and they didn't mean it. You confess Jesus as Lord, total submission to Jesus Christ, it says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the power and the penalty of sin. Saved to what? Saved to eternal life with Jesus forever in heaven. There's some here today who may need to do that for the very first time. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To believe in your heart that God has raised his son from the dead. Today is the day to proclaim him as Lord of your life, declaring your faith in him as the Son of God who died and was raised again for your sin. It's then and it's only then that you can live in and profit from the truth that we've seen this morning. Once you know Jesus through life-changing faith, you can live in victory. You can live in confidence. You can live in humility. You can live in holiness. You can live in the new life that you've received by faith. You can live in hope. 
can live as if the spirit of the living God actually resides in you when you receive Jesus by faith. We started with Jesse James this morning. The quest to prove that he was dead so that the fears of the people who didn't want Jesse James to show up on their doorstep of their bank or right up next to their train, those fears could be alleviated. And those who sought his death and eventually took his life could receive the reward for doing so in a far more important sense. We have witnesses, we have evidence of the death and the burial of Jesus Christ so that our fear of death our fear of condemnation, of having to pay for our own sins can be alleviated and that we can share in the eternal reward that Jesus offers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the proof, for the eyewitness accounts that we see of the death and burial of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incredible truth that comes from that simple fact. Lord, as we leave this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would live in the truth that your scripture has to offer us. Knowing that our sin has been paid for in full, that it's buried with Christ, that new life is now possible, Received by faith in Jesus. Change us, Lord, into the people that you want us to be so we may live in holiness and purity and hope and victory in this life and certainly in the one to come. We pray in Jesus' name.